Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the studio as we are recording now over Christmas break. This is December 23rd. One day before Christmas Eve, we are definitely in the Christmas season for many. Um, with this weekend having come, I'm guessing some families had their Christmas a little early. We did, um, and um, I got what we did with my in-laws, and I just like to say that I got one present. We do like the exchange, and it was a full pajama onesie of the St. Louis Blues. Nice. <laughs> Well, I look forward to you doing that on campus at some point. It was um, very funny. I appreciate it. Well, good. And we had our immediate family, Johnston, um, Christmas yesterday, meaning the the five kids, me and Trisha, and then the kids, uh, oldest kids, uh, significant others or whatever you call them in high school. Um, so that went well. We were able to exchange presents, uh, played uh, some Trivial Pursuit and categories, and then watched Die Hard, as is our Christmas tradition as Johnston. So that went well as well. Uh, during this Christmas break, we're hoping to record a couple episodes. We already have one in the hopper. We're looking forward to coming out. And our Christmas episode with Paul Leninger just came out. And uh, recording with Dr. Leninger is becoming a bit of a Let the Bird Fly Christmas tradition as we're talking about the two natures of Christ in one person. So I encourage you to check that one out. Um, we're going to be recording two episodes today, so we'll see how that goes. Um, and the first we're going to be recording today is on a novel by Sinclair Lewis, It Can't Happen Here. Um, this is a, I was on a, a reading binge um, this summer, especially as I was building a course, and I, I was reading a lot of dystopia. Um, I don't know if you'd call this pure dystopia in the sense of it, you know, a lot of people associate that with more science fiction type stuff, um, but there's definitely elements of it. It was a book I, I found interesting. Um, it's a book that's been in the press somewhat because there's been uh, people with the current political climate that will bring it up oftentimes. Uh, They'll bring it up, I, I suppose, uh, as if it um, was a prefigurement of uh, our current president. Uh, that's not the, the route Mike and I plan to take today. Um, we, we hope to navigate this uh, with some political Some nuance. nuance yeah. um, and what we really want to focus on from the book is that what sets the general conditions um, for things to go wrong. And I think it's an interesting thing because it's a, a book that was written um, during the rise of fascism in Europe. Uh, and what Lewis is basically saying is, uh, you know, in America we take for granted that fascism couldn't happen here. Um, and, he, I mean, basically the novel is an argument of... It can't can, happen yeah, here. Maybe it could. Um, and I don't know that we're so interested in, in what side he of the aisle he sees being more prone to it or um, the exact uh, minutia of the book. But it is an interesting thing to think about. So we'll be looking at that. And especially, I think, looking at it through the lens of, uh, you know, the current climate. We just had the big Christianity Today kerfuffle um, where the editor who was on his, um, he's he was going to be leaving anyways, um, but wrote an editorial uh, about President Trump and uh in his case, saying he should be, um, the editor thought he should be impeached. Um, and this sparked a debate I've been kind of waiting for to happen for quite some time. Uh, that is, it sparked a debate among American evangelicals um, about uh, where they should fall um, politically. And I don't think it, it's a debate that's limited to uh, the president. And I don't want to talk a lot about the president today. Um, but just, uh, you know, We've spoken of 
the evangelical vo- voting block in America here since at least what the eight ladies, mm-hmm. late eighties, Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to me to see that debate taking place. Um, you know, as Lutherans, we have the two kingdoms or two realms, two spheres doctrine, um, and we tend to at least try to be a little more nuanced in that realm. Um, the evangelicals, with the Reformed influence, I think especially, and a good dose of Americanism, uh, don't have that. And so it's an interesting thing to watch. Um, I saw something, a statistic the other day, something like 43% of evangelicals possibly being in support of impeachment. Um we're not going to talk about impeachment either, so you don't have to worry about that. But what I mean is uh, it's an interesting time to be alive in America. Um, it's an interesting time to be alive in the West. Uh, they just had a big uh, election in Britain as well. And uh, and so we're going to be talking about the book. Um, and I think both of us, especially more cultural, societal, historical observations than anything political. So if you heard us uh, or heard me now talking in the beginning and you got a little nervous, oh, they're just going to bash my guy or not bash, or um, or they're going to support this guy, or uh, that's not the goal at, at all. Um, I think it is an interesting book. I think it stands the test of time pretty well as being an interesting read. Um, it's really, you know, during the Roosevelt era is when it's focused, so you can read it, I think, without being too alienated politically. Um, you can also bring a lot into it anachronistically if you want to um, as well. Uh, but with that, Mike, I guess anything you might have on yeah. the, the intro? Well, just maybe one comment that I, I think we'll both come down on. It's kind of not our job as clergymen to to tell you how to think about these things, but to right. offer a context. And that will be the beginning of this novel is uh, the clergy. some of the clergymen uh, in this uh, fictitious novel. Um, or uh, historical fiction, uh, don't do that, right? right? And and part and and the danger of that too. So, and uh, I think Mike, we can probably honestly say both of us have never advocated for a candidate in our position as uh, as clergy. Oh, huh? absolutely not. Although I, I do have a political sign outside my house now because we bought our own house. I'm not a parsonage anymore, and so no one knows who I am or what I do. And I did very much enjoy. And I I would putting just, that out. You know, just for the sake of the church, I would. Uh, you know, ask you not to tell your neighbors that you're a clergyman and maybe be a stain on the church. Yeah. No, I, I try not to do that. You probably don't like my son, though, do you, Mike? Uh, you know, I, 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 here, here's You don't have to say who it's for, but. No, I, I could care less. I, I, my position right now is I don't trust anybody who wants to be president of anything. It's probably a good That's position. kind of just where I'm at. Um, no, you're, you're guy that you is an interesting, uh, interesting guy. Um, you know, I, I am not indifferent, but I think that we probably put too much emphasis on the, um, executive branch just because I don't think it's as powerful or shouldn't be as powerful as we think, you know, I would be, if I was president, it's definitely more powerful than it was intended to be. Right. And, and that's, that's both a left and a right thing. I mean, we've had probably three. Well, there's this like tendency. It seems like everybody who ends up in that office. Wants more power for it, so it doesn't it matter who matter gets elected. They, they doesn't matter what party. For three administrations in a row, I think there's been, and that's, if I was president, I would try to like curtail, who's the who Swanson, the guy on Community. Yeah, that that's kind of I like I, him. I, I'm a lean a little bit more than that. Like it's messy, let it be messy. Um, but yeah, so I'm I 
whatever. That would be a good free-for-all sometime. Favorite uh, Swanson moments. <laughs> uh, since we're not going to have a free-for-all today, can I do a plug for my... Yep, and then so, we got to remember to uh, do our other plug, too. So go ahead. All right. So uh, as some of you know, uh, Carrie Keene, our physicist uh, on campus here, and I run a summer... all-around great guy. Yeah, all, all around. We know where he stands politically. Yeah. <laughs> Um, run an apologetics course here. Um, and so we have our website up now. Uh, we can't register yet, but probably in the new year you'll be able to register. It's blackearthapologetics.com. Blackearthapologetics.com. And that's a reference to Melanchthon. We should explain that on the website, but we won't go into that detail. I thought it was right now. Be apologetic. Be apologetic, yes. I, I wanted I'm sorry.com, but I don't think people would get that. So we have two weeks that we offer. You can go to either. You can go to both. You don't have to go to one before the other. The first is just uh, what we're going to do every year, a practical apologetics class. Uh, Carrie and I will run that uh, June 15th to 19th uh, in the mornings and then one afternoon. So it is it is a few class hours there's some reading but it's not like there's tests or anything like that and we can have people from we've had people uh high schoolers all the way into their 60s and from a variety of backgrounds and uh, uh vocational uh, vocational backgrounds and so don't ever be intimidated uh we we will challenge you but uh, i don't think anybody would get lost this year we're going to bring in for a second week um a ringer and that's going to be june 22nd to the 26th the 2020 and uh pastor luke thompson from ottawa canada st paul's there and he's going to talk about uh postmodernism but i think in a fun way uh his we've we've chosen the title into the postmodern wilderness he's done a lot of work with ecclesiastes uh and also just kind of what you would call like mapping thoughts and the world and how do you think through all of these things and so i'd really encourage if you're if you're a pastor that has done some apologetic stuff or into you have a campus ministry uh, you're working with your teens or just have that ability and that desire to be talking to people and engaging culture i think He's a pretty sharp dude, and uh, I think that you would really, really, really enjoy it. So June 15th and 19th, and then the second week, June 22nd, 26th, $200, so it's cheap, but it's not, uh, you're not, um, it's not um, too expensive, we think, uh, to, to eliminate some people from being able to take it, um, but it is, it's, you're going to get your money's worth, I think. So blackearthapologetics.com if you're interested. Also, 1517. Go there, see their stuff. Yeah, lots of good stuff. They've been Blogs, good to us. Podcasts, um, another conference that will be coming up next year. I think uh, Mike and I will be attending, but not not having to work this time, not presenting. Um, so we'll have plenty of time to say hello and uh, chat if you make your way out there. But 1517.org, they're also in their calendar year-end campaign for 2019 um, you can find more information there. And, and Mike, if they enjoy our podcast, what should they do? They should like us and subscribe so that they get those downloads automatically. That helps us spread um, our brand. That's a dumb way to say it, but, you know. Well, there's brand loot. Yeah, like pedigree. You know, yeah, sorry. Um, we're, not, we're not about that, though. Um, but we do, we have a lot of fun doing this and and. Everywhere we go, we find somebody. I was at Christ the Lord in Brookfield doing 
uh, Bible class for last month, and there's a couple people that said that I never met before and said like the podcast. So um, it does matter our small little uh, revolution. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that's please, a, that's a reference to our upcoming book. Yeah. So subscribe, um, like us on social media. We are on um, Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Yeah. Hmm. Um, it. Uh, we actually have got a, some new follows recently oh, on nice. Twitter. I was impressed. But um, subscribing really does help when people are searching for Lutheran stuff. Um, it helps us be higher up, or they're searching for theological stuff or other topics. Um, that might be related to the podcast. So if you feel this is a, a valuable conversation, help people find us um, so they can be part of it too. Um, if someone's looking for theology on the internet, um, why not have them get some good, solid Lutheran theology or whatever you personally call what we <laughs> do. <laughs> um, if you have uh, questions, you have topic ideas, you have thoughts, um, you can email us, go to letthebirdfly.com. All of our information is up there. Um, there's a lot of blogs, devotions from the past up there as well. Um, so I encourage you to, to be in touch with us that way too. We've had some good emails lately too, so which we've appreciated, um, which we're working on replying to. Um, so like, subscribe, download, share. It's get, you're going to be at the holidays. You're going to be with your relatives. Stuff's getting tense. Your one uncle's a little tipsy. He starts spouting about whatever sets off the rest of the family. Uncle Frank. I call it when I'm in class and I talk about that. It's always Uncle Frank. Yeah, so Uncle Frank, you know, diffuse the situation and be like, hey, you know what's a good podcast I've been listening to? Let the bird fly. And uh, change the topic. Talk about animal fights, one of the free-for-alls. We've given you some free-for-all friendly discussion you can have. Had some very good free-for-all. We had our... um, semi-annual podcast meeting. We're not having a free-for-all today, so we're going a little long on the intro, but semi-annual podcast meeting at uh, the semi-official podcast meeting place in West Dallas, um, the lovely Benos. And uh, um, I think we came up with some very good free-for-all ideas, Mike. What mm-hmm. do you think? Yep. What percentage of the free-for-all ideas that Ben and I came up with are you going to let us use? Zero. Not even, we had at least one. I don't think so. We had a lot of ideas, though, you have to admit. <laughs> there were some good ones. All right. We should do our disclaimer. Yeah. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Topic, which is Sinclair Lewis's novel "It Can't Happen Here," written 1935. Am I right on that? Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, right in the midst of kind of the um, fascist movements, um, you know, think of Germany, Germany, Italy, your um, spots in uh, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Croatia, 
Um, Spain is kicking off at this point. It's been kicking off, right? Because they're supporting it, mm-hmm. um, I think, with Franco and that. So um, if you're in America reading the news or listening to it on the radio, you're getting a steady stream of developments um, regarding uh, fascist movements. Um, on the flip side, you're also hearing about what kind of movements, Mike? Fascism likes to... Communism. Again, with communism as well. And so you um, you would be hearing a lot about um, movements of the far left or the far right. And even maybe we can talk a little bit later on if that's always the most accurate I, that we just kind of default to, um, especially I, with fascism with, with yeah, far right. I, I don't like that. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a proponent for Yeah. So after your that. intro, maybe we yeah. can talk about that a little, um, but not only that, but if you read literature in America at the time, you have concerns about movements in America itself, mm-hmm. um, uh, that seem fascistic or, um, are advocating for communism. Mm-hmm. I don't think people get like the late 19th century through mid 20th century America, how different the po- political landscape was, um, and and probably how much more um, active and uh, versatile. Um, you know, people are are sliding up and down the scale, mm-hmm. finding different places based on their conditions at the time. Um, it uh, it was an interesting time to be alive, and so you're getting news from abroad where these things are actually happening, and then you're hearing news at home about um, groups with perhaps these inclinations mm-hmm. at home. But Mike, you talked about maybe yeah. starting off with a little bit about Sinclair Lewis himself. Yeah, and maybe before I get there, I when an amateur historian and that that would describe just about all Americans, um, we think okay, the 30s the depression and then the 40s is uh world war ii and what's good about reading this novel is they don't really talk about the depression that much it's there but there was a lot of political thoughtful engagement that was going on um that wasn't it wasn't just about the new deal it wasn't just about um uh the 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 dust bowl and the great depression and even with the great depression happening um lewis is aware of the economic boom that preceded the Great Depression mm-hmm. was not a, a boom equally for everyone. Yep. Um, that there's classes, um, economic classes, racial classes, that were left out of that. So that's good to keep in mind, I think, as well. Think of in our own day, um, we've had uh, plenty of booms from Clinton on um, that people our age can remember, whether it be the tech boom and then the tech bubble, real estate boom, mm-hmm. real estate bubble, um, the economic upturn now and yet we know those are not um, universal experiences for everyone across um, fields and uh, geographic areas. Um, the experience of someone um, during the tech boom on the coast was very different than in the Midwest, for in, 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 uh, for uh, example. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's good to point out that his economic um, concerns are not simply tied to a Great Depression. Taking and that's place. why it's so helpful to read a novel from the actual time. Right. We think I think especially us where we had growing up, we had the decades of our century all were very um, late. They were they were labeled easily. Right. You have World War One. You have the roaring 20s. You have the Depression of the 30s. 
forties World War Two. Warriors. Fifties was you know uh, Americana and recovery. And, I can and, and but with with communism in the background. Yep. Radical sixties, drugged out seventies, go go's economic recession of the seventies yep. too. Go go eighties and and then kind generation of generation me was it me generation yeah, with the eighties too or just kind of a and then the nineties kind of a whatever blissful ignorance 90s were great. sort of i still will argue oh, yeah. that the 90s were the best oh, yeah. decade of the 20th century um, so it's good to then read and not you know what that should be like a we could do a free i'm not a free-for-all but like a, a series like over when we've run out of ideas like let's read a novel from all of those decades I think that would be kind of interesting. Anyway, St. Clair Lewis, uh, born 1885, Sauk Center, Minnesota. So if you're uh, familiar with western Minnesota, if you're going from the Twin Cities up to St. Cloud, you go a little bit uh, uh, further into a small town called Sauk Center. And uh, Minnesota seems to pop up here and there. Eventually, he lives in Vermont. Right, but the, uh, I would say Minnesota is very important for Lewis and then also for the book. Yeah, and... Um, uh, Sock Center, he, his first big book was Main Street, where he does kind of take on that uh, conservatism of a small town, kind of don't think, don't go outside of the boundaries, we're nice to you and everything's going to be good, just don't push it sort of thing. And Main Street really becomes um, indicative of a type of writing, like Sinclair Lewis's kind of descriptive... Um, I don't know that I want to say down to earth, but people will refer to Main Street as like, this is a style of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really becomes iconic. And um, because it was insulting on a superficial level to a small town Minnesotan. It does to small town Minnesota, what Flannery O'Connor does to the south. And so it was Alexandria, which is a town um, a little bit further uh, west of Sauk Center, not by, at one time had banned his book. However, Sauk Center... Their high school mascot is the Main Streeters. Really? Yep. And still to today is the Main Streeters. And and living out there, I knew that. I knew that that they were the Main Streeters. Um, because I think there's something about that where people, they might hate that something's picking at their area, but yeah. they also, I mean, there's stories of Flannery O'Connor, like her writings that they uh, supposedly would pass around in brown bags, <laughs> like back by her hometown because they couldn't help but read it, but you didn't want to like admit you were reading right, it. Right, right. And so I just kind of working there in that kind of, uh, I mean, really probably got, got suck center with St. Cloud. I would go there for hospital visits. And so I know that area just a little bit enough to go. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, wonderful people. And I think he does appreciate his, his background. Um, I, I think, uh, think of what, um, Oh, shoot. Who's the NPR guy that talks about Lutherans? He got me too'd. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I know what you're talking about. But kind of like what that guy does with Lutherans. You can tell he kind of likes them, but he also yeah. pokes fun. Yeah. And Lewis does that with small town Minnesota. Right. Why, why can I remember that guy's name? Um, so, well, it'll come to us. Uh, Sinclair Lewis uh, eventually wins a Nobel um prize in literature in 1930 and so his it can't happen here is uh the second act of his career i don't know if that if if that's the the right way to say it but he had a slew of novels later after phase, that yeah. yeah he had like 10 novels or something 10 or 11 novels after that i think uh i may be incorrect on that uh dies uh 65 1951 in uh italy um so i don't know if there's too much more that uh, yale educated um but uh um, not Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, 
you know, that we got make sure that at first I'm like, I think I get those things, those guys mixed up sometimes. So these are two different Yeah, guys. Upton Sinclair, by the way, another book we should read at some point is The Jungle. Yeah. Um, is a I was, I was, very good novel. I either read it or was supposed to read it in high school. Um, I'm guessing it was somewhere in between. I read some of yeah, it. Yeah, no, very interesting book. Uh, I guess the the last thing I'd, I'd say with it is um, Lewis himself falls. Uh, you know, he's um, supportive of the civil rights movement, um, probably uh, politically, you know, um, progressive, uh, if we want to use that label for his time. Um, but just as we will be talking about the novel, he, so he's going to fall probably a little more on the the left of the of the spectrum. Sure. Um, as we discuss the novel, as a good Minnesotan from that time period, probably would have been. And and I think people don't get that about the Midwest, um, especially in <clears throat> recent elections, because a lot of the Midwest has become maybe flip states, um, and even uh, you see this in Michigan with Reagan. You had Reagan Democrats, mm-hmm. right? Um, but before that, Midwest was uh, was not Republican country like we think of now. Um, even today in Wisconsin, uh, you know, what is it, like two-thirds of the state assembly is Republican. Um, but back in the day, Wisconsin, Minnesota, those farmers... Pro- progressive Progressives in Wisconsin and the Democratic farm and labor in Minnesota. Yeah. yeah so and unions you know, in Michigan. And so sometimes I kind of get a chuckle when I watch the news now and people will act as if the the Midwest is, you know, default anything. Mm-hmm. Um, probably as much as any states, um, they've really bounced back and forth mm-hmm. in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not least. it's not a mass conversion such as the South going from Democrat to Republican. Right. And I don't think it's a big shift in values either. No, no. So why don't you, would you mind giving us just kind of the characters and the major, like, storyline of, sure. of this uh, uh, historical fiction book it can't happen here and why don't we go ahead and uh get to that so as we as we talk about the plot i don't want to get completely lost in it but maybe if we just give kind of a a grand overview so it's uh mid-1930s in america um the presidential election is coming up uh and we have this candidate uh senator Berzelius, who is called Buzz Windrip, who is going to be running. Um, he has a populist platform, and keep in mind, populism is something that uh, late 19th century through mid-20th um, century is going to pop up again and again. I mean, even into the 50s with McCarthyism. Um, and he's going to be running on that platform. Uh, I read this a while ago. Mike read it more recently. Both these books are books that um, both of us have, have been reading uh, recently for um reasons of some stuff we're involved with with the college. And the other book we never mentioned that we're going to do next time on our next episode is The Death of Expertise. Right, that's the other one I was referencing. Now, refresh my memory, Mike, but I believe at first Roosevelt wasn't going to run against Windrup, but then he gets in because whatever happens, Windrup defeats Roosevelt running um, on the Democratic ticket. Yeah, and and it's like, it it was kind of surprising me because... uh, we consider Roosevelt just a uber popular president. Of course, he wasn't. Well, and um, this would have been it, early on. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is supposed to be in 1936. Right. So and we're so, not up to the war years yeah. or the, the serving four terms. And maybe Rose, in this novel, Roosevelt was already president, correct? 
I believe. I it. think so. And uh, they don't spend. He doesn't spend. Sinclair Lewis doesn't spend a whole much time with with Roosevelt. Roosevelt comes up later in opposition to Windrip, yeah, but not yeah. <clears throat> not early on. And so, and I, I got the impression Roosevelt knew that there was this this populist uprising sort of thing that he was not gonna. He just was not gonna be. He's not gonna win. Right. And um, and so. Uh, Windrip is running, and he his platform kind of is uh, – he promises that he's going to increase incomes. People are going to have job security, stability. There's going to be safety. Um, but in typical populist fashion, doesn't always outline how this is going to happen. And so I, I think he promises something like five grand. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe ten grand. For each citizen yeah. or family um, if he is elected. Uh, Windrup then defeats Roosevelt in the Democratic elect, uh, election or for the convention meeting. Um, and then he's going to run against a Republican named Walt to- uh, Trowbridge, who's kind of like a old school establishment Republican who doesn't want to sink to Windrup's level. And so he tries to run the dignified campaign and therefore gets trounced. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, when Windrup comes to power, um, he's he, and he infuses these things with patriotism and um, uh, he, he has to create an other, an enemy, you know, to to be nervous about. The, Is it the League of Beleaguered Men? Is that what they call it? Uh, yeah. yeah, and the Minutemen will be kind of this. Um, their Minutemen are supporters of um, Windrup's regime, who eventually will become like a militia. Um, they will become more important than the army. In mm-hmm. fact, um, the government itself, if you're a supporter of it, it gets known as corporatist, and then corpo for short. Um, Windrup comes to power, and you can see here he's playing on somewhat things that have happened in in Europe where someone wins an election. Um, Now, we could say, well, Hitler never won an election, but technically the the Nazis won election of parliamentary seats to put Hitler in a position to um, seize power that he did, although he never outright won his position, Um, not in a meaningful election. It's hard to believe, but the elections were a little rigged uh, (laughs) later on. and so, bit by bit, but um, I know you said, Mike, rather more quickly than you would have expected, and I think you thought that was maybe a weakness in the book, um, he solidifies power, he kind of pressures into Congress to bowing uh, to his power, um, you know, he's he creates kind of these crises or these emergency needs that need to be met, um, and these things are going to become permanent. Uh, you get to the point that kind of the judicial system gets taken over. Um, so you have military judges rather than a, a meaningful judicial system. Um, and one of the, the biggest things for allowing this to take place is Windrip is allowed or able to reach a lot of people who feel alienated. Now, I would say how, as far as race plays into this novel, um, with it being in 1936, it's pretty predictable. He appeals especially to poor whites. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not a... Um, appeal across racial lines so much, although I think Windrup himself argues he's made things better for um, the black population as well, although you read the novel and it's hard to believe that. Yeah, kind of like if you put yourself into 1930s where this is not, this is pre-civil rights movement, right? And so I think there was at the kind of at the end of the novel, like uh, the, the corporal people's kind of saying, well, if you give the Negroes as they would they would call call that uh, that race um, enough to make them happy, they're not going to be a problem. 
right? And so it's not like they're, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's just right. for the time, it was still heinous, but it wasn't like this is black versus white. Right. If anything, it's um, white versus Jew, although even then it really wasn't. It would. I let, got the impression that this was much more about power right. than it was about race. Right. Yeah. And I think when he brings in race, he's almost doing it because he recognizes that that's played into fascism, and especially in, in it's, Germany at the it's time. A useful, it's a useful tool for the powers to be. Right. Um, so there's this appeal to the, um, the disillusion, the, those who feel they've been left behind or marginalized. And so there's a lot of he, – he, he makes a big point of resentments. So people who used to work for someone else get a position within the corporal regime and are able to kind of get revenge in that way. Settle the score. um, To gain wealth through the political system. Um, I would say uh, there's a lot of emphasis on cult of personality and patriotism. Um, And that's, I don't think it's an indictment of patriotism as a whole, but we all recognize sometimes patriotism can go too far. Um, but fascist elements of, you know, emphasis on parades and celebrations like that, <laughs> celebrations of um, Windrup. Uh, event- I would call it forced patriotism. Right, yeah. Um, so that even many who voted for Windrup um, because they saw him as kind of being law and order, stability, better economy, start to eventually kind of question what they've done. The regime itself eventually has scheming. Windrup is driven from power. Then the person who drives Windrup from power, Saracen, is driven from power. Um, and you have this Dewey Haig who takes over um, when the regime is kind of feeling somewhat threatened with internal divisions. They decide to create a need for um, unity through uh, an attack on Mexico, a manufactured war with Mexico. Um, and and only because Mexico's the closest. Right. Like he's repeatedly said, it'll be China, Japan, it, Italy, it didn't really matter. Um, it w- you need a convenient war. Right. We're not going to get completely to the end. Um because I don't want to give it away, quite frankly, in case people read it. Um, but the main character, and, and Mike and I aren't quite sure how to say this, to be honest. We debated it. Um, I'm going to say Doremus Jessup. Yeah. He's a newspaper man from Vermont. Um, he's, uh, I would say, traditional Western liberal viewpoints. Um, do, you think, do you think this is Sinclair Lewis writing about himself? It could be. And, you know, um, so Jessup is... Uh, probably left of center on some stuff, but there's some stuff he could be right of center. He definitely is, um, I would say, like a, a, a Western liberal, representative government, constitutionalist. Um, and he is going to write against the regime and uh, eventually kind of have to go into exile. He's going to make his way to Canada, where um, Trowbridge and some of the opponents of the regime had, had fled to um, and work to oppose the regime. And I'm not going to give away the ending, so we'll, we'll stop there on that. Um, but I think what's particularly interesting to us are the things Lewis hits on that could feed into kind of this growth of fascism in America. And I, I think um, some people, Lewis never said that I can actually find when fascism comes in America, it will be um, carrying, a cro- or carrying a flag or and draped in a flag or carrying a cross, but... Supposedly those two mentions, but, um, and it's interesting, the corporal regime is not religious, Mm-mm. but they will exploit religious themes, mm-hmm. and I think you see that with fascism in parts of um, Europe as well. I mean, Mussolini is not a good Catholic, but he recognizes mm-hmm. he needs um, the Vatican 
<laughs> to succeed. Um, Franco in, in Spain. Um, hit, I, the, the Nazis would be somewhat different, although the Nazis hit on religious themes early on, but overall the Nazis were not very religious. No. <laughs> um, but um, I think patriotism, somewhat religion, um, class warfare, um, envy, um, maybe law and order, right? Because a big part of this book is going to be the increasing curtailing of rights um, and people willing to trade their freedoms um, for security, whether it be economic or um, personal. Uh, and uh, Get with the program. It'll be easier for you. Right. Um, I would say expanding power probably of the executive branch, which if you're going to talk about fascism, you have to have a strong leader. Um, fairness of the courts, right? So um, um, equality before the the law. Um, and I think in Lewis's case, as he writes this, the exploiting of traditional values without actually valuing traditional values, right? So the the using of traditional values while not actually the people using it don't value the traditional values in and of themselves, but because they're useful for their purposes. <laughs> um, as far as where it falls on the spectrum, um, I would say um, there's a lot of things about how Lewis presents it that would be considered maybe um, r the right side of the aisle politically. But I would also note that he sees this coming through the Democratic Party in America. Mm -hmm. And I think partly because that's where populism was probably more at home mm -hmm. um, at that time. And we have to remember um, the Democratic Party of that time and the Republican parties were not the parties of today. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, you know, well, not in many ways, the Republican Party was the party that ended slavery in mm -hmm. America. Um, at this time, you still have the Democratic Party um, where the Southern Democrats um, are very much pro-status quo, Jim Crow, things like that. Um, the Republicans tend to be more northern, <clears throat> urban, industrialist. Um, so I think there's there's things that could be left or right of the aisle. I just don't know that we get much out of debating. I, some people are just going to think of this novel and they're going to think about it being used against Trump. Um, but I, I think, A, that's somewhat anachronistic. And I think, B, we don't need to discuss that to get into the novel so maybe if I throw it to you, Mike, yeah. anything that stood out to you? Yeah, just maybe a broad things like just how, how all this happened. It, it started with a, he starts with a radio preacher, uh, Bishop Paul Peter Praying. Oh, I, I did miss yeah. all of this, so you should fill that in. And, and this guy's, uh, you know, it, it just kind of was like just a little subtle thing that you could buy time, you know, and he never explores that, but that, I thought that was interesting. You could buy radio time, and, and he talks about you can buy time. And by buying time, you can buy influence. And so you have preachers who are going to say, just, I mean, it's just so predictable. America's going to a hell in a handbasket. And it's because we don't have these morals. We don't have this. You're right. not going and to church. And there are prominent radio preachers of that day that Lewis probably could have been trying Oh, absolutely. And, and, and he, this is the golden age of that, right? And the, at the beginning of, uh, of radio, um, you know, you... In our next book, we'll talk about this, it, then the switch from FM to AM talk radio. Um, that's a huge, that's a huge uh, switch too. And in both instances, you are able to get to the masses in a very cheap, authoritative, without any kind of uh, journalistic vetting. 
you can get a message right to the people. And so uh, Windrup is elected largely because he's got at least a, a couple radio preachers on his side. And these are both Catholic and Protestant. Yeah, and so he they don't distinguish. The only other time Windrup kind of says something about religion that I remember is, besides the overtones in his speeches in his, his book Zero Hour, um, was when we finally attack Mexico, he wants to attack Mexico and he wants a North American country, right? That will turn him Christian. Yeah. And so you can tell that there's that Protestant leaning, like Catholics really aren't, you, you still get this a little bit, that Catholics really aren't Christian from a from a kind of a far, uh, far back. And I mean, this is, yeah. this is before um, Kennedy, right? Sure. And we have, to, I mean, we have to remember that even Kennedy people didn't know if he could get elected. Right. Running for president yeah, as a Catholic. Yeah, his famous speech in Houston to say, I won't be a puppet of the Pope, basically, right? right? And to be fair, too, not, I don't want to get into the ending, but um, these Christian groups don't stay with Windrum no. necessarily the no. whole time. No, yeah. um, but there is a few preachers that are, uh, these people have been forgotten in our society, and it's good, hardworking, American Patriots and a concern to reinforce traditional values. Our day isn't yep. the only day that we felt that people felt like the culture was shifting. Right, and so um, you could you could that that's not unique, right? I mean, we we still in early in our ministries and probably still today, if we're in the parish, we would hear that of the days of and I one usually it was the 1950s, right? That was those the days. But I finally in Bible class once said. You, you, everybody wants this repristination time, and it's usually when you're 12, <laughs> because you're not, you know, mom and dad aren't complete idiots yet, yeah. you know, and uh, life's pretty good. You don't have the, um, um, you don't necessarily have all the complications of boyfriend, girlfriend, high school, and stuff like that. But you're coming into your own, you know. That's the best time, right? 10 to 12. Um, that that was when everything was perfect. Well, it was because you were pretty ignorant of what was going around, right? You know, and yet you are somewhat aware. And so he, those radio preachers are playing on that. That is able to get him into this. Now, there's there's quite a few things that you read and go, wow, that is really really uh, uh, unique um, today. Like this could have been written today. Like. I don't like this. I'm going to Canada. We hear that. Yeah. Uh, guaranteed income for everybody. That we we see that being played and out. Not that that's a terrible idea. No, I'm not saying that's a terrible idea necessarily. I feel you like have, you're taking it. <laughs> you have me. you have these group of minute men who are going to talk about law and order. They're going to talk about border security. Um, they are, um, they're going to be regular people, not in, in the military. I, I mean, if you're reading this in And 19- you might hear Mike say that and think tea party, but you could just as well think occupy wall street. Yep. Yep. Um, there's sides. elements of both sides of these. In the and if you were reading this novel in 1941, you would have probably jumped to Gestapo or SS because the Minutemen then become government controlled. It becomes a private army for um, uh, the, so it is different than the Tea Party or whatever, but there are parallels there, right? And there will be internment camps, and some might think, well, that's outrageous, but remember in America, there were internment camps. Right, right? like right after this <laughs> yeah, book was written, yeah. right? Um, Although these are more concentration camps. Right. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, well, we've talked about cult of personality, but I would also talk about forced patriotism is, I think, a threat. Like... Um, I don't want to get too political, um, but there is this idea of unless you do this 
thing that is patriotic, you're not a patriot. Um, that is very, 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 very dangerous in my mind. Um, yet at the same time, uh, to be self-righteous and say, oh, America's stupid and everything's terrible in America. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go back to Europe. You know, that, I got no patience for that either, right? Well, and I think here, I think Jessup, um, one of the things I appreciated him is I think he gets that, and I think this is a point that needs to be made more often today, is sometimes there's nothing more patriotic than doing something that seems unpatriotic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's uh, a very American thing um, to emphasize liberty and free speech. Mm-hmm. And I think on both sides of the aisles, we can see patriotism played up um, to stifle speech, um, and uh, I think that can be um, a dangerous thing. We see it on the left um, as we have, I mean, you, you look at um, in the younger age groups, support for the First um, Amendment is at record lows. Mm-hmm. And everybody always wants to argue about the Second Amendment, and that's fine, you can argue about it, but the First Amendment's the one that scares me. I think that's yeah. the one that's really at risk. Um, and, I mean, it's... You have people on the left and on the right who want to control or censor speech mm-hmm. um, and may appeal to patriotism or to other values to try to do so. So I, I think we, um, I think that's a very fair point, Mike. And, yeah. um, and Jessup is going to emphasize kind of throughout that the American thing is to exercise your liberties mm-hmm. in a responsible way. Yeah, and maybe just a, a couple couple things about the, the novel itself, and then I think we need to tackle this idea what is fascism? Is it, is it a left thing? Is it a right thing? Is it a both thing? Uh, I think we both will come down on that. It can be a, a both thing. Uh, from a, from a liter- literary point of view, and I'm sure if we had our English professors here, they would maybe roll their eyes a little bit because this was, this was a hasty book that came out. And so um, he wrote it quickly, Sinclair Lewis. And uh, you know some of the criticisms are, he does kind of break all of the rules of, but remember, he's already a, Nobel Peace right. winning Nobel author. Prize winning, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, Nobel Prize winning. He can do what he wants right here. Right. You know, and he's not so much concerned about that. But two things, like, so the the main uh, guy, Jessup, who is a small-time uh, 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 editor of a Vermont uh, publication in his early 60s, um, has a wife, Emma, who is the dutiful wife they love each other, but they don't sleep in the same bedrooms kind of thing. And he has his own moral issues. Yeah. yeah. And then he has this uh, side, chick. side woman, and it's not graphic or anything. I mean, but there is definitely a connection. Uh, these are soulmates kind of thing, and they do act out on it. And this may be clumsy, and maybe he didn't intend this at all, but his internal how much do i fight how much do i uh just kind of go with the flow and and he is eventually forced into um being an editor but below a government official who is going to be actually the editor of this mag this newspaper and so he's not allowed to he doesn't have editorial control over the content anymore. And so he pushes the envelope. Does he push it more? He feels guilty about not pushing it more, but he's got a family to think about it. And, and, and I think the internal thing with his wife and his mistress is, is a parallel there, right? Yeah. Like he wants to just break away from all of this and just go and take his mistress to Canada. Um, 
but he he feels bound in this loving, dutiful relationship of his family. And uh, that's an internal struggle, right? Like both sides are not completely uh, satisfactory to him, right? I mean, he is he is a moral man here. Um, and yet at the same time, his wife is kind of indifferent politically, uh, indifferent to to all these things and he's not being fulfilled and she's not being fulfilled and, and all those kinds of things. I think the second literary thing is there is this uh, Shad Ledoux who is a... Uh, think uh, it's like a Vermont hillbilly is the best way to explain it. Comes from a large family and he's a worker um, uh, in the Ledoux household. Does the outside mows lawn and stuff like that. And at the early part, it's clear he's not a very good worker. Uh, Jessup should fire him, but he feels bad, and so he keeps him on and whatever. And there's this growing resentment from the worker towards this elite, and that's another theme that gets played out that is played out in our society today. This elite educated thinker that doesn't really know how I, the regular man, what he goes through. And eventually when uh, Winthrop becomes president and there's a whole nother government, Ledoux all of a sudden becomes kind of a, a low ranking official with military pow power through these Minutemen, this, this kind of uh, professional our personal army of the government and is able then to uh, settle the score with this family a little bit. And it gets complicated and all that kind of stuff. But there's those two literary devices kind of help us understand the, the humanity of what's going on here, that you have a lower class that feels like it has been forgotten. So there's a rise in populism and there's going to be a settling of scores. Then you're going to have this person, uh, a lot of people who are, do I just go with the flow or do I fight in a revolution? It's easy for us to read this, go, of course you should fight in the revolution. But in the midst of it, you don't understand where this is going. Right. You don't understand if this is really going to be something that's going to be terrible. Yeah, and I, I think, they took away some rights, but it's not that big of a deal. And right? I, I do think this is, um, just briefly, I, I won't interrupt you for mm -hmm. long, but I think this is something that's extremely timely in our own day too because one of the things that, um, more and more in classes I'm requiring students to do assignments where they have to read the news and one of the things that I found actually gets them to pay attention a little bit more is to say do you realize you're one of the first generations of America um, in which we have been at war your whole life mm -hmm. um, now some people might say well that's not a war that's an operation <laughs> but um, it uh, where you have people who are always being deployed or brought back. We did not have that for us until a very small conflict, the first desert war. And we had, you know, a few things like Bosnia and, and, yeah, and but, stuff like that. But, um, but I think there is something to that as well of, um, something to think about for our own day is all of, and, and there's, it's interesting to me on the left and on the right, both sides will be critical of this but in different places and for different reasons. But I think it is something for us to think about as Americans and as Lutherans too, because Lutherans do come from the heritage of just war theory. Now, whether or not you agree with just war theory in its entirety as we have it from um, uh, Augustine and Luther, um, it ought to be a concern. Mm -hmm. um, and it ought to be a concern as well because uh, um, when we put American troops in danger, we, um, as Lutheran Christians, 
are or claim to be pro-life, right? Um, we want their life to be to be respected as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this is an interesting thing to keep in mind too, because um, it does point to the distracting nature of conflict. And unfortunately, I think many um, presidents have realized conflict often comes with a bump in uh, polling points. And sometimes, and, sometimes economics, some t- depending. Yeah. Right, and so um, I think that is something that holds up pretty well uh, over time too. And if you read stuff from Lewis's day as well and study the history, um, the war years for both wars um, became rather good for America economically. Um, and there were a lot of people who were displaced after the war because they had positions in the war economy, right? Um, now, that doesn't mean there wasn't rationing and stuff like that, too. But um, but I think that is a um, a point you bring up that I forgot to hit on that I think is very yeah. important. Maybe two more things about uh, there's a parallel and, and how I think this book actually, because it's so far removed, I mean, we're 70, 80 years from it, that, you know, when we apply it to today, you could can make your own conclusions on things, and then and then after those two points, I think we should we should tackle uh, just fascism, a little bit of fascism. Yeah. So you brought up the first and second amendments. You know, when I'm reading this from my own eyes, I I I see first amendment obviously is in the foreground here. Uh, that's the first thing you're going to try to attack is <laughs> is the press and and how easily that happened, and that how difficult. That's my. My biggest worry here is not that the not that the 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 press in modern day America is liberal or conservative. It is. It's just the way it is. Or that the government's going to take control of the the narrative. I I don't know that that happens outwardly. It may happen inwardly. Although to be fair, every administration would love to. Right. Yeah. My biggest concern is that the press is incompetent and doesn't understand their vocational responsibilities. Well, and that is an ultimate, and I think Jessup hits on that in the yeah, novel. Yeah. It and is the, perhaps the most prominent threat to any democracy. Um, and I think death of expertise will bring this out a mm-hmm. lot too. But um, if we want to be a democracy or a democratic republic, um, the only way for people to be autonomous, not to get all Kantian in language, um, autonomous deciders in a meaningful way, right? In many ways, good citizenship in America is also informed voting, mm-hmm. um, is the quality um, of the media that we receive. And um, I think one of the things that we see, um, why he he chooses Jessup as a newspaper man to be kind of this, the, the hero, mm-hmm. um, is... Uh, this is an age where um, the idea of a um, objective news is very recent in America, and it's more American than about anywhere else in the world. Um, but it's not—it's not parallel to the entirety of American history. No. If you read newspapers from the late 19th and early 20th century, they are um, hyper-partisan. In fact, this is why many cities have multiple newspapers. Historically, Detroit News, Detroit right. Free Press. Um, I think the Minnesota was the star and then it was the Tribune, Tribune. and they merged Journal, Journal Sentinel, Sentinel here in Milwaukee. Um, and you There's have very this, few cities that have two newspapers now. Right. And you have the beginning of this coale- um, coalescing of a, the idea of objective news reporting um, that Jessup is going to try to uphold. Um, in many ways, TV news, early TV news kind of 
feeds this idea of objective news because you, you had only certain network channels mm-hmm. and you wanted um, but I think it is timely as well because we do see in our own day I think um, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong a return to partisan journalism simply because with the internet and new media um, it's one of if a newspaper is going to sub- survive it needs subscribers or mm-hmm. it needs um, things going viral mm-hmm. and to do that you have to appeal to a group mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, it can be very hard to get. Now, no news is entirely objective. There's never been an entirely objective news report in the history of news reporting mm-hmm. because the author himself or herself has seen things through their own experiences, right? Um, someone reporting in Afghanistan who's a Western reporter, what they notice is conditioned mm-hmm. by the fact that they're a Western reporter. But um, I think we do see um, this kind of hyperpolarization of the news. Um, and uh, part of that is how, we'll get to death of expertise as well of how people get media, um, but it's because that's what people will click on and subscribe to. Yeah, yeah, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but there's a difference between too responsible, quote unquote, responsible, and they weren't always so responsible. I mean, like it's the same thing with like all of our political mud throwing. Like you have no idea. Like right. you're oh, going yeah. in the 1800s. I mean, they're ta- they're right. they're attacking each other's wives. You know, I mean, we would blush. Yeah. So, but two quote-unquote responsible editors in St. Louis, two rival newspapers. Right. With the, they got to sell copy. I get that. But they're still going to, one's going to flat out say, this is our candidate. The other one's going right. to say, this and is our candidate. And they're clear about it and honest about yeah. it. This, under the guise of being fair and honest today, um, those are two different things. Right. Right. So that's what put, and then the second amendment, uh, I'm reading through this, you know, thinking about the second, second commandment, second amendment. Um, at one point you see these Gestapo type like tactics coming in unannounced to a house, beat up the women and children, take the man, um, without a trial, without a without due process, any of those things. And you say, if they had a gun, Right. I mean, that's an argument for. Right. Uh, and, and and that's a legitimate. I think that's a legitimate, legitimate argument. At the same time, you have these Minutemen <laughs> who are armed. Right. Who um, decide that they're going to all of a sudden be the authority. Right. And so you do have. Uh, Both sides of it. And I think that's one of the benefits of this novel is that you can look at that, apply it to your day. And you could come with different conclusions right. on some of these issues. And, and I think with Jessup and his family going back and forth and how much they, what, what's going to be their highest value? How are they going to react to this? And then the family strife within that, they're going to have different, in, to the people that are closest to you, different political feelings. And even if the political feelings are somewhat similar, the tactics are going to be uh, uh, there's going to be different opinions within a family and the family does have some stress. And I think that that is very applicable to our day. Um, maybe if we just close with talking a little bit about fascism, cause it's a word that gets thrown can, out. Can I start? And then you, since you're the expert on intellectual history, you can correct me. Okay. This is how I teach it. I say fascism is an Italian word for a bundle of sticks and a bundle of sticks has got to go. I can break one stick. I can break two sticks. I can break three sticks, but a bundle of sticks together we're all together, then we are strong. To get a bundle of sticks together is not a difficult thing if you're cleaning up your yard, right? 
it's even more difficult when you take a bunch of individual people <laughs> who then have to be all going the same way. And the way you get people this going the same way is you have a strong leader, you have a common enemy, and it's really fear. So it's fear of economic ruin, it's fear of the other, it's fear of the, you know, name this, n name this whatever, communism, or or, or uh, bad borders or whatever. All of those things could be a threat, but they are useful for the leader. And, and then I think that the leader then, the government takes the place of God in a certain sense. That's who you look to. Everything's controlled by that yeah. person. Your economic, your, uh, your, your school, your education, your happiness, instead of kind of a bunch of free citizens living their life yes there's government control there has to be in a sinful world but the government can't come into your conscience it can't come you know and and outgrowth of that would be um education freedom in education freedom in the press and stuff like that and and i'm gonna there was one line that it almost seemed like a throwaway line from sinclair lewis um but he talked about windrip loving the people so he's he's this very fatherly i i can do everything for you just follow me and we're gonna more morals and security and all those kinds of things <clears throat> so there's a fear aspect follow me i'm your leader to get you out of this danger and notice this is not a right or left thing either because yeah. you and might have noticed candidates on both sides of the aisles will make um grandiose promises tied to yeah. the person and and windrip knows the cult of personality and which we see in American politics, but also needs to be loved. He needs right. to be loved by the people. And there's this throwaway line, and I think this is what Sinclair Lewis meant, was um, Windrup loved the people but hated the persons or feared the persons. And I took that as he loved the, the people, right, these masses that would adore him that he could lead, but the individual conscience, the individual person, those are the people he feared or even hated. And I think you see that out in politicians today too. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. So now you correct me. Is that a good way to introduce our students to uh, fascism, which, and then you, the next step is to say, see that there's some very liberal, the government can fix all of your problems if you just give us enough money problems, but there's also fascism, the fear, uh, it, which can be typically conservative. Um, let's keep, Let's keep our values here. Don't let the others change us. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind with fascism um, is that what fascism wants is a uh, one party uh, tends to be corporatist state. And corporatist there doesn't mean corporation run, um, but the state is viewed as a body or as a whole, um, almost as a an organism. Um, and so fascism is not as... Uh, Fascism can be politically expedient in many ways. Um, as far as the policies it adopts, um, the values it upholds, um, the uh, people it supports. Um, and I think an interesting thing when you want to understand fascism is to compare um, the fascism in Europe of the 30s and 40s with what happened in the Soviet Union. And you'll see that in many ways there's not nearly as many differences as people might like to think. Um, the Soviet Union had a one-party state. Uh, Nazi Germany had a one-party state. Um, 
some people will say, well, the, Nazi, the Nazis uh, supported private property more. And I would say to that, um, in some ways, yes, um, but not when uh, they thought state interests collided with private property. Um, some would say um, Nazism allowed capitalism more. And I would say in some ways, yes, but not when um, a free market collided with the interests of the state. Um, Nazi Germany did not have a free market in any meaningful sense of the term. And we have to keep in mind that the Nazis not only condemned communism, but condemned capitalism as well. Um, in the Soviet Union, um, some people's private property was respected, depending on if they were in the right political party. Others weren't. You know, some 15 million, uh, 20 million perhaps died in reappropriation of land and crops. Um, Nazism created a racial other. The Soviet Union created an economic other, um, the kulaks. And people would say, well, what's a kulak? And Stalin would say, <clears throat> what does it matter? A kulak is a kulak, right? When we need to declare someone that. Um, and so uh, it's a one-party state. It tends to be a, a corporate regime, meaning not corporate, once again, like a business. But the state is an organism, um, which is why you often have notions of purity, whether it be racial purity, economic purity, national purity, um, an emphasis of patriotism, but in the end, the idea of what you need is a strong leader. Um, what also did um, the far left and, and um, fascism have in common was they both thought liberal democracy had run its course. It couldn't survive anymore. Um, and so uh, the fascists saw liberal democracy as making people weak, um, as making a nation weak. Um, you can see kind of this exploitation of Nietzsche's thought um, of, you know, uh, liberal democracy was um, this herd-type mentality in which the weak ruled the strong. Um, in the Soviet Union, uh, it thought um, that liberal democracy was holding back the revolution of the pro proletariat um, and economic utopia. Um, fascism uh, has no time for free speech. Um, we can see this as being movements that have taken place on the left and on the right as well. Um, and this, again, the reason fascism has been put on the right is because fascism was opposed to communism, which is about as far on the left right. as you can go. And so vis-a-vis -vis communism, fascism is to the right. But even Trotsky um, called it um, the socialism of the right or the socialism of the middle class. Mm -hmm. And if you think in our own day of where you would place socialism on the political spectrum, um, it would be to the left. And I don't say that as though um, I am a... Um, I'm not concerned with putting down socialism necessarily. Or um, I think sometimes people think socialism has to equate to communism, which it does not. Um, we in America have aspects of socialism that I would bet 99% of people are in favor of. Um, although we're not a, a full-blown socialist state, I'm no, not saying that. No, no. What I mean is we don't want to be simplistic on this. Right, right. Um, but the idea of fascism at the end of the day is strong leadership a corporate state, um, not economically corporate, but it's, it's run as an organism, um, usually an appeal to the past, traditions of the past, whether those be national traditions, um, moral traditions, um, and an elevation of the state above other loyalties. Um, and here we'll see at the end of the day, fascism does not... Uh, um, Force patriotism. Right, and it cannot be meaningfully religious in the long term. 
um, because the right the and this is one of the it's values of religion, religion of the church. Right, useful for a while, but it's not going to. Yeah. At the end of the day, an honest Christian realizes that Christ has claims on things that one cannot give to the state and be loyal to Christ. Um, and that's why I think in the Lewis book and also in in fact of history, um, you had some accommodation between religion and fascism early on. But in the end, both Catholicism and uh, true biblical um, Protestantism came out against uh, fascism. Catholicism, to be fair, came out better than Protestantism did against it. And even though... To be honest, though, Catholicism didn't come out against it all that well either. In Ger- I'm speaking in Germany. Elsewhere, Catholicism pretty much almost entirely accommodated it, which um, was unfortunate too. Um, but I don't think – I think the main reason it gets put on the right is because it's put opposed to communism, which is on the left. Um, but to think that fascism – Can't happen here. Well, to think <laughs> that it has to always look a certain way and yeah. value the same things um, – it's economic approach. It's um, the morality it, it tends to hold to. Uh, it, it's expedient. It's what the one party or the regime views as being best in the national interest. And keep in mind, the national interest means the party's <coughs> interest. Um, I would say the biggest inclination of fascism that manifests itself on the left and right in our own day <coughs> would be um, attacks on the First Amendment. Um, whether they're explicit or not, and I, I would agree. If you haven't read the First Amendment lately, go read it. <clears throat> I think people just think First Amendment free speech. That's not all that's in there. Free expression of religion, free press, <clears throat> free speech. <clears throat> all these things are kind of masterfully tied together in there, <clears throat> and, um, and that fascism has a problem with because what is free speech, free press, free exercise of religion grant to individuals? It's to be critical thinking, um, it, it's to say the state doesn't own my conscience. Um, and I think that's where um, the Lewis book is extremely helpful for recognizing when we're willing to you know, play fast and loose with those values. And the impulse today on the left for that, I would say um, in many ways comes through PC culture. Um, the fact of the matter is, as, as America, we have a long history of how to deal with people whose speech we don't like. Turn it off. <laughs> Don't associate with them. We have a free association. Um, Don't buy their stuff if you don't want to. Um, I think we see it on the right, um, often um, under the guise of patriotism, often, I would say, with attacks on the press, Um, sometimes fair attacks on the press, Um, but oftentimes a complete um, rejection of the press. Um, We we won't even talk about flags in the church. And we shouldn't forget that it was really the Christian right that began cancel culture, too, in the 80s and 90s. I mean, do you remember when we were being called on to boycott everything, Mike? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we just we just taught the, 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 the Christian right. I shouldn't say we, but I wouldn't put myself on the right really much mm-hmm. on a lot anymore. Um, but, Did, uh, but we kind of taught the left how to do it. You know, I... We were censoring television. We were... Yeah, <coughs> yeah. Um, I mean, in different ways, you know, that's, that's, that'd be interesting topic is the attacks on free speech. And, and then, and then how do you, cause, cause you just said you're allowed to turn stuff off and boycott stuff. When does that turn into what we now call cancel culture or whatever? That'd be interesting to see how the left and right do this. And I don't think it's so much that one's moral 
and the other one's not moral. Right. They each have their own morality. They each have their own morality, but they also carry it out in a different way. Right. And I think that would be an, that would be a really fascinating fascinating topic. I've, um, Steve Paulson had a great line at the f- first free conference in New Ulm um, where he was asked about kind of in the ELCA, what we might call the radical theological left. And he said one of the mistakes people make is that he thinks that they're immoral people. Mm-hmm. He said they're not immoral, they just have a new morality. Yeah. Um, now, a, a biblically, dec- we might call these things immoral. Yeah, a decadent pietism. Right, but what he was getting at is that they do have a morality that's oh, yeah. driving them. It's just not the <clears throat> traditional Christian morality. And we should listen to that sometimes because we have some, you know, if we're truly going to be repentant Christians, <laughs> we need to see that uh, maybe we, we've ha- we have some holes too. We are getting into our next podcast and out of time, so let's wrap it up because a lot of these things will be... Uh, we'll probably address in our next book that we're going to take a look at, The Death of Expertise. So um, when we're reading this book, I know you and I probably both had this feel about freedom. Like, how, how can you try to control a person's conscience? And We were made for freedom. And when the government or revolution or whatever tries to, tries to guarantee freedom, it usually ends up being something flawed because it's my freedom against somebody else's or whatever. And the true freedom only comes in Christ forever, but also right now in a world given back to us. And so that's the theme of our podcast. That's why we like talk, discussing these things and reading these books. So go live free, friends. Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tanker. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round won't get me down.